0: This is Foster McCurley from the Wrestling with the Word podcast, and this is our discussion of the Bible texts for March 21st, 2010. This is episode 65. Four Bible passages are listed in the Revised Common Lectionary for each Sunday. I try to connect most of them by the way they relate to the theme in the Gospel for the Day. This Sunday is called the Fifth Sunday in Lent, Year C. Check out the show notes on the lessons at wrestlingwiththeword.com. You will find there some comments on the Hebrew and Greek words that are important in the passages, as well as some cross-references to other biblical texts that help illumine the ones we are studying. The biblical passages for the 5th Sunday in Lent are these. The psalm is number 126. The first lesson is Isaiah 43, verses 16 through 21. The second lesson is Philippians chapter 3, verses 4b through 14. And the gospel for the day is John 12, verses 1 through 8. The Bible passages burst with God's promises of salvation. Since such promises are never conditioned on human behavior, we can attribute those promised acts and God's past acts to God's amazing grace. The Bible also makes no secret about the praise God expects for such graciousness. And so the responsibility of the people of God in each generation is to determine what forms that praise should take. Let's begin with the psalm for the day, which is number 126. It's a beautiful psalm, just the way it begins is enticing. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. It might in fact be that the psalm presents the dreaming or visioning of people who wait for salvation. Their dream enables them, I think, to anticipate the time of their deliverance from adversity. Even then... The nations will recognize the work of God in their salvation. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. It's a theme that runs throughout the Bible, where because of the way that God acts for Israel, all the rest of the world will somehow see it and understand who actually accomplished this work and come to praise God. At the moment, however, the people themselves are to join in this praise. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. The psalm then returns to reality, I suppose, pleading with God to fulfill this dream by turning their present sorrow, whatever it might be, into joy, and their hunger into harvest. Again, it's beautifully done. Whoever goes forth weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing the harvest with them. It's a really interesting psalm, how it anticipates praising God for what God has done in the past, perhaps, and but also for what they anticipate God will do in the future. It's a kind of transformation between the present and the future, between the time of sight and the vision of glory. In case of both what God has done and what God will do, the people join in praise. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. <music> First lesson is from Isaiah chapter 43 verses 16 through 21. My summary of the passage goes like this: To a people suffering the results of their sinfulness, God promises a new act of salvation that will result in the people's declaration of divine praise. The prophet that we call Second Isaiah delivered his sermons to a people who had been in exile for some 40 to 50 years. His preaching seems to have occurred close to the end of the exile, and so he mentions by name Cyrus, king of Persia. It was Cyrus, in fact, who defeated the Babylonians, and in 538 B.C. signed the edict that allowed the people to go home and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so the preaching of this prophet in chapters 40 through 55 of the book is really directed to their lamentable situation in which they feel forsaken by God and disregarded, in fact, by God. This kind of announcement is really critical for them to get over that and get on with something different. This passage is throughout a word of God. It begins, Thus says the Lord. And then, interestingly, that Lord is defined in a very particular way that gives hope to the people who are exiled in Babylon, who makes a way in the sea and a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, their extinguished quench like a wick." It gives us the impression that it's a description of the Exodus event that happened in the time of Moses, way back in the 14th and 15th chapters of the book of Exodus. And it probably is. It's the way God was known among the people, the God who saved them from the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, and in that process gave them the Ten Commandments to learn how to live one another in honor and praise of God as a way of giving thanks. But now there's something else going on. Because the next words follow, remember not the former things, our tendency is to feel that the people aren't supposed to regard the former salvation from the land of Egypt. But it is not at all that, because the writings of 2nd Isaiah are filled with the understanding that the former thing is the act of judgment which brought them into exile. That occurs again and again and again in this prophet. The former thing was that act that God had promised in years past about destroying them and taking them into exile because they simply did not honor God in the way they lived their lives. They worshiped other gods, they did not take responsibility for the poor and the needy, and God kept saying time after time after time in the prophet Isaiah, in the prophet Jeremiah, in the prophet Ezekiel, that they're going to be taken away. And so here they are taken away. They The former thing is the act of judgment that occurred in the past. Check out the show notes to see all those passages in Second Isaiah, where the former things really refers to the act of judgment that brought them there to exile. But now, over against that former thing that God is asking them, don't focus on that anymore, because I am going to do a new thing. That new thing is what God promises over against the old. In chapter 42, verse 9, it said, See, the former things have come to pass, that is, the judgment, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I'm telling you about them. You also have it in chapter 48, verse 6. You have heard, now see all this, and will you not declare it? From this time forward I make you hear new things, hidden things that you have not known. And so this is the way God is introducing the act of salvation to come. It's a new thing over against that which they've experienced for the past 40 to 50 years. A new thing is salvation. It's going to be spectacular. It's going to be like the first exodus. It's going to be a second exodus. And all that's going to happen, God said, for the people I formed for myself. Now that word formed is really kind of the image of a potter at work. But the interesting thing is that it is used repeatedly in these chapters of 2nd Isaiah to describe God's work of forming Israel. Then chapter forty three, right in the very first verse, we read, But now thus says the Lord, the one who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel. And in verse seven, we have it again. It says, Every one who is exalted by my name, this is God speaking, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Now, notice that one, because it's very important for our own verses. 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. God created the people of Israel for his own glory, and whom I formed and made. Now, that's exactly the way our passage is going to end. To give drink to my chosen people, the people I formed for myself, in order that they might declare my praise. The whole purpose of God's salvation work for the people from their exile is that God be praised. That happens again, actually, in chapter 48, verses 9 to 11. It's very emphatic. For my name's sake, God says, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, so that I may not cut you off. And then it goes on in verse 11, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For why should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. The whole salvation act of God is so that the people might give God glory, that they might proclaim my praise. It might sound awfully self-serving on God's part, But it's interesting to me that in the passage we're going to look at next week as our second lesson for the day, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, that passage ends with the purpose of Christ's humiliation and exaltation to be the glory of God the Father. That's what it's all about. God saves us, God delivers us, God creates us in order to give God praise. (laughs) The second lesson is from Philippians chapter 3, verses 4b through 14. My summary of this passage goes like this. Counting as nothing his religious past and accomplishments, and having been made Christ's by Jesus himself through the righteousness of God, the Apostle Paul urges the Christians in Philippi to forget what lies behind and press onward toward the goal. Paul had just finished discussing Timothy and Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2, confirming the personal aspect of his and their relationship with the congregation at Philippi. He even calls Epaphroditus their liturgist to him, their minister to him. He begins chapter 3 then with warnings against those who would persuade them to return to such former requirements as circumcision. The true circumcision, he indicates, is being Christian. What Paul does at the beginning of this passage is indicate that everything that he had gained on the basis of his background, his his ethnic background, his biological background, his religious background, everything that he had gained really amounts to nothing. He counts it, in fact, as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All of that, he even considers them Rubbish, dung, the garbage left after a feast is the word that he uses to define what he had before. And he says that he does this in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Notice that he doesn't say that I might find Christ, but the issue is be found in him. It sounds like the words of amazing grace. I once was lost, but now am found. It's not that I found anything, but I was found, indicating it has nothing to do with Paul's ability. It is simply being at the grace of God and having Christ find him. Now, the words that he uses here are very significant because they're so utterly Pauline. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but one, a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. That statement sums up the essence of Paul's preaching and teaching, and of course bears strong similarity to his writing in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. It is the righteousness of God. It is God declaring us to be righteous in spite of our Unworthiness and guilt. That really is what saves us. And, and what I find to be interesting in this passage because of the way it relates to the first lesson for the day that Paul actually says in verse 13, Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but this one thing I do, as I haven't done much, but this thing I do, forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead. That really sounds so much like Remember not the former things. I'm about to do a new thing. And so it's so much like that that Paul is saying, I've got to let go all of the things that I have considered so important and press on toward the goal. And what the goal is, the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. That salvation event to come, that resurrection from the dead, that declaration of innocence on the judgment day, that's really what Paul is pressing on, that prize, that promise of God in the future, and the way he lives out his praise to that promise here and now is his incredible commitment to the mission on which God has sent him to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. That's the form that praise took for the Apostle Paul. The Gospel for the Day is from the 12th chapter of John, verses 1 through 8. My summary of the passage goes like this. Faced with his imminent arrest and execution, Jesus appeared in Bethany, where he received Mary's anointing for his burial, and he left a message for the church to praise him thereafter. In the previous chapter, chapter 11 of John's Gospel, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You'll recall that it was a very, very moving and powerful scene. Jesus became very popular among the people on the basis of that miracle and obviously became the object of contempt among the chief priests and Pharisees. It's in the context of that contempt and the plan to get rid of Jesus that Caiaphas, the high priest, prophesied that Jesus would die both for the nation and for all the children of God who were scattered abroad. Now Jesus was aware of these plans to kill him, and aware of that he went off to the town of Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples for a while. When the Passover came, people were wondering whether Jesus would come, because the Pharisees already gave orders to reveal his whereabouts so they might be arrested when he showed up. The passage is really about the anointing of Jesus, but perhaps what makes it stand out so powerfully, particularly in Matthew and Mark and John, is the fact that Jesus spoke the words, The poor you always have with you, you do not always have me. Jesus did that because of the complaint by someone that the ointment used for this anointing was so costly. It could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus' response you always have the poor with you, you do not always have me, comes really as a striking and confusing expression on the part of this one who has totally identified himself with the poor from his very birth all the way to this moment near his death. He has spoken of the poor in so many, many different ways. The Apostle Paul even told us that Jesus became poor for our sakes and dwelt among us. And yet Jesus makes this statement, the poor you always have with you, you do not always have me. A common temptation is to miss the meaning of the story by losing ourselves in all the details and the comparisons as we look at the story in Matthew and Mark and John and then in a different way in Luke. Now many of the details that appear here and there simply result from the ways stories developed in the early church. The unnamed woman that we have in Matthew and Mark who anointed Jesus becomes in John's Gospel very specifically identified as Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. The location of the incident moves from the home of Simon the leper in Matthew and Mark to the home of Mary and Martha in John. The woman anointed Jesus' head in Matthew and Mark, but in John Mary anointed Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The indignation about the cost of this ointment arises from some in Mark to the disciples in Matthew, and specifically to Judas in John. Mark, the earliest gospel, actually continues Jesus' statement about the poor with the words, You can show kindness to them whenever you wish. Both Matthew and John eliminated that part of the saying. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus commends the woman and promises that people throughout the world will hold her in remembrance whenever the gospel is preached. That kind of praise is not all that obvious in John's gospel. As for the expression about the poor, Luke eliminated that entire quotation from his gospel. He moved, in fact, the anointing event out of the passion story entirely into the first of a series of reports about a growing cadre of women who became disciples, The anointing of Jesus' feet by a woman known as a sinner became a story basically about forgiveness in the 7th chapter of Luke. I have to wonder whether Luke thought that Jesus' statement about the poor you always have with you detracted from his gospel's emphasis on the poor. Now, what does it all mean? Certainly, it was a very extravagant act. The extravagance lay in the fact that this ointment should have been sold and given to the poor, and it could have been sold for 300 denarii. Now, that's really a staggering amount of money, because according to Matthew chapter 20, verse 2, a denarius represented one day of labor in the fields. Therefore, the cost of this ointment was really an annual wage, 300 days' worth of labor. It's no wonder that Judas complained and asked the question, why wasn't it given to the poor? Now, in John's Gospel, that's played down a little bit, and it says that, well, Judas was a cheat and he was trying to pocket the money. But that isn't even brought up in the other Gospels. We don't even have any indication that Judas said it. Obviously, Judas had a pretty bad reputation by the time John wrote his Gospel, and so these words are put in his mouth so we know what's going to come next. But what about these words, The poor you always have with you, you do not always have me. Again, the same words appear in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14. What does that actually mean? And is Jesus really indicating here the fact that Mary gave her praise by anointing me in advance for burial? What do these words mean? The poor you always have with you, you do not always have me. They must have been said by Jesus because they appear In the same way, in Matthew 26 and in Mark 14, why would Jesus say something like that? It is possible, I think even quite probable, that Jesus is quoting a particular piece of Deuteronomy 15. There will never cease to be some in need on the earth. That sounds so much like the words that he uses here. But what actually would Jesus mean by saying that? And is it possible that he wanted to call our attention to a larger quotation? Suppose in just focusing on those words, Jesus really wanted his disciples and the early church to think about the context of Deuteronomy 15. It was not an unknown practice, even in Bible times, to start a quote and expect the audience to finish it. A stitch in time, we say. We don't really have to finish it. Everybody knows they can fill it in saves time. We know that because there's a certain context out of poor Richard's almanac that enables us to be familiar with the quotation and we know that it's said over and over and over again. It's a very common saying. But suppose the common saying were from Deuteronomy 15. We even have that practice actually demonstrated in the New Testament in Second Peter chapter 2. Verse 22, we have a quotation f- regarding an old proverb, the author even says. And the proverb is, the dog turns back to its own vomit. Yummy. But the author of Second Peter was actually writing to an audience that was actually losing the faith. It was going back to their old ways. It, it was leaving Christianity to return to paganism. And the author wanted to say, you're like the dog that turns back to its own vomit. He is quoting Proverbs twenty six eleven. As a dog turns back to its own vomit, so is a fool that returned to his folly. You see, if you just look at the first part, the dog turns back to its own vomit, it really doesn't give you the impact of what the author is getting at. He assumed they knew Proverbs 26, verse 11, and so they would say, oh yeah, I know how that goes. So is a fool that returns to his folly. Yes. Oh, that's what, that's what he's talking about. That's us, fools. Now suppose Jesus is really quoting the first part of Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, in order to call attention to the whole verse. The whole verse reads like this, Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, therefore I command you, says the Lord, you shall open wide your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. You see, I I have to wonder whether that's really what Jesus wasn't getting at. Remember, he was the master teacher, He was the one who could enable people to hear things they would never otherwise hear, to understand things they would never understand without him. And for him to use this expression, the poor you always have with you, has got to actually call to mind the rest of that verse. Therefore, you shall open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. You see, I think it's very clear that the, that Jesus was praising Mary for her wondrous work that she did, anointing him in advance for burial. His death had just been predicted at the end of the previous chapter, and now she is getting him ready for that, assuming she wouldn't have the chance to do that afterward. And so here she is honoring Jesus, praising Jesus, in fact, already by her act. But what does the rest of the verse do? You shall open wide your hand to the poor and the needy neighbor in your land. As this passage is told and the act of Mary repeated from generation to generation, along with it goes this quote. And is the rest of it really what Jesus wants to keep in mind? Mary prepared his body for burial. How do the rest of us praise God and honor the Lord for his resurrection? How do we celebrate the fact that Jesus is Lord and God raised him from the dead? How do we do that? How do we declare the praise of God now that we don't have to prepare his body for burial anymore? Isn't it consistent with what Jesus says so many other times in the New Testament and from what the Apostle Paul says repeatedly that the way we respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ is to love our neighbor, to take care of the poor, to be generous? Isn't that the way the early church acted according to the book of Acts? Isn't that really what the Resurrection calls us to do, to offer our praise of God in service to others, particularly those who are poor and needy in the land? There will never be a world without them. In fact, in the world itself, two-thirds of the population really is very, very poor, living on less than $2 a day. Many of them living on less than that ointment was worth over 4 billion people in the world today. Wouldn't Jesus want us to honor him as Lord, to praise him for the resurrection? By the way we relate to these poor, you can show kindness to them whenever you wish were probably words of encouragement rather than simply a resignation to the fact that, oh, well, they're always around, you can do whatever you want to them. It doesn't detract at all from what Mary did, but it does call us to see what is our way of praising God in our time on this side of the resurrection, on this side of Easter. That ends our discussion of the passages for the fifth Sunday in Lent, year C. In the next episode, we'll talk about the lessons for the Sunday of the Passion, Palm Sunday. You will benefit from reading in advance of the podcast the biblical passages for that day. They will be Psalm 31, verses 9-16. through 16. The first lesson will be Isaiah 40, verses 4-9a. through 9a. The second lesson is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And the gospel for the day will be the passion story according to Luke. It will be Luke 22, verse 14 through chapter 23, verse 56. Be sure to look up the show notes and the accompanying blog at wrestlingwiththeword.com to help you prepare for listening. Before signing off, I want to thank Briarus Nada for the music during this Lenten season. The song is called Mellow Mix, and I am especially grateful to my daughter, Dana Gillen, who serves as my producer for these podcasts. Until next time, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you.